0: Well, hello. Today, we're bringing another Natter and Nor conversation. This time, instead of having the conversation as a webinar, we thought we'd put it out as a podcast and see if that was accessible and helpful to people. So this series is being run by Clarion Call, and Clarion Call's whole ambition is to get behind people who are trying to work together for meaningful change and to follow our community's call to action. This particular series, we were interested in exploring what it takes to do that. And the focus that we're really trying to hold to this is how do you do it? Not get all sophisticated about modelling and language and to tie people in knots about what you should do, but really to bring what works, what gets in the way, what doesn't work at all. And today we've got the lovely Moira work. And we've got the lovely Jack Beetson. And the topic that we're going to be exploring with them today is movement building for equity. So,
1: Moira. Thanks, Sharon. And I'm gratefully on Ghana country today in South Australia. And I just want to acknowledge elders past, to present and emerging. And I think it's also important to recognise this is land that's never been ceded. And I'm rather excited that we elected a new government in South Australia last week. And the Attorney-General is an initiated um, Aboriginal man. And so on his agenda right at the top is uh, treaties. So I'm excited to see how that's going to unfold in my place over the next few years.
0: Thanks for the invitation. And Jack, where are you coming from today?
2: I'm coming from Land in Sydney, which is near Parramatta. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and also acknowledge um, our elders, past, present and emerging. I also want to acknowledge my own people and Yimba people from the far northwestern New South Wales in Brewarrina, and it's on the on these shoulders that I arrive here today.
0: Beautiful, thank you both, and I'm coming to you from the land of the Zha Zha Rang, and we would like to pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and we'd like to not only note that this land was never ceded, but that all of our work can be strengthened by listening to the voice of our First Nations people and carrying some of their wisdom and practices into the work as we go forward. So let's hear a little bit about each of you first. We went Moira first last time, so we'll go you first this time, Jack. Tell us a bit about yourself.
2: Not a real lot to tell, really, but I guess for me, people often ask, you know, why do things work that I'm involved in? For me, it's really simple, and the most important thing for me is that I care about the work I'm involved in, care about the communities that I'm working with. And I don't care much about proving methodologies. I just care about finding what works in a community and that'll be different everywhere. And so one thing I do is transformative mediation. But I think there's a key component of that and that's not leading people to a, a conclusion or a solution. It's about making sure that they get to do that. So I apply that pretty much everything i do is that i don't know what the answers are i only know where they are and they're in the communities mm. and and my job i feel is to facilitate a process that allows those answers to come out
0: mm, beautiful is there anything else you'd like to share with yourself share about yourself personally before we ask Moira the same question
2: yeah, I'm a, I'm a happily married man with a very young daughter, six and a half years old, and that takes up a lot of my life. Happily, it takes up a lot of my life. Yes, yeah, that's about it.
0: Beautiful, thanks, Jack. What about you, Moira? Well, Jack, I um,
1: I'm a grandmother of a six and a half year old lad, so that's a great joy in my life, and he's just been joined by two other grandchildren in the last few months. So, yeah, at, at my heart, Sharon, I think. I am a family person and but I've got a pretty big definition of what it means to be family and so I started off my professional life as a social worker a bit like Jack too I definitely see my work in facilitation and more recently as transformative facilitation so I might be agnostic to what the issue is but I'm definitely not independent when it comes to what communities want I, I'm a hundred percent behind what they want to do how they want to do things, and over the last sort of twenty years, I've lived on the Fleurieu Peninsula, and I am a very proud South Australian. I'm really proud of the things that we have historically done in our colonial times and also pre-colonial times. And this is always, as well, always, will be Aboriginal land from my point of view. So I'm constantly trying to have a really learning attitude to that as a settler. So. Those things are really on my mind in the design and in the ways I like to work and be with people. And I find that you don't have to do much sometimes. My goal is always to have what's the lightest touch I can have to have the maximum impact. And and that comes from sort of 10 years doing um, improv when you can just do a little bit of reflection and you can have a really big impact just by saying yes and.
0: Mm, Beautiful. So... Moira, one of the things that uh, you touched on was the notion of where there's issues of race or issues of equity. Just really interested to know what does equity and building equity mean to you?
1: So when I think about equity, and often people get confused with equality and equity, so what I usually say is equality is where everyone's got um, a pair of shoes to wear, but equity is where everyone's got a pair of shoes that fits. And so that means that the work is often the gap between getting people to be able to put the shoes on in the first place and then make the shoes that are going to fit or, you know, be in an environment where the shoes can be found. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So for me, that's what equity is about. And that I think I've been really influenced by leaders in the collective impact space like Michael McAfee, who um, is a policy link in the United States who talked about the noble cause of, of equity. And I think that we can really take some lessons from the civil rights movement and from the women's movement and more recently, you know, Black Lives Matter and in our Australian context, the land rights movement to really help us understand that it's not just a question of getting a right or getting it equal, but we actually have to fill in the gaps around that. I think that was done really well in Australia during the years around disability when we were building our consciousness around, you know, international youth disability back in the 80s. So I think that we've got some good grounding there, but it's very easy to default to looking for equality, and mm. I'm talking about something much deeper and richer than that.
0: Mm. So you've talked a bit about the movement building in America, Me Too, and I know Marshall Gantz is a personal favourite of mine. What would you say would be the building of equity or approaches to building equity that you think are Australian or really fit and sit well in our communities?
1: Yeah, I love Marshall Gantz too. And I think if we look at the lessons that the early land rights movements took from Marshall's work, actually, in the landless and the farmers movement in California – where people were being mobilised to speak for themselves and to look at legislative change. So I often go to those early years of land rights right, you know, back to Vincent Lingiari, immortalised in the Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly song, you know, from Little Things, where that was a, a question of, you know, community coming together first, then communities of communities, then people being becoming ambassadorial and going to find the right people in town, getting the political allies getting legislation changed I mean all of those ingredients are what makes a movement and coming forward to our current time I think of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins in particular who have called out sexual abuse and and that's they've changed the national discourse they've changed the national conversation are using social media campaigns in Grace's case again having support through you know a journalist and championing it through the press having public events like the big rallies and the march for women and in, fr- in front of parliament house so all of those things i think are teaching us what it means to mobilise, what it means to be a leader in that space. And I've got a very strong view that the best leadership in this space is unelected leaders. We have saw this recently, very recently in the floods, uh, but before in the bushfires, where community leaders come together and name what's going on, offer alternatives just because of what they are doing. It's not a 24-month Royal Commission inquiry. Mm -hmm. They're just getting on with it. And in the getting on with it, um, make visible to the rest of us what's actually possible. So some of the things I've learnt from them is certainly the idea of living out loud and talking very clearly and publicly. And the old adage in feminist theory has been, you know, the personal is political and so, not shying away from your own story and making that front and center, and how that is actually a lever for what needs to happen. So, I think that's been making me think more about this. isn't theoretical. This is real people's lives, everyday stuff. And I think it's I, you know, live a pretty privileged life, and it's easy for me not to be um, touched by some of those things. So, that's been a big lesson. Um, and then in the things I'm involved with around gender myself, so I'm a founder of the Henhouse Co-op and our goal is to close the gender investment gap, uh, which is huge. So like from venture capital, less than 2% worldwide of venture capital goes to female founders, which is just that is not an accident Mm. there's a problem with the design Mm. there um that problem I call patriarchy and um so I think it's really great when the public discourse is bringing a gender lens to things
0: Mm, beautiful so it's been really interesting and you build a movement just in the way that you talk and the way that you engage us both to think about what it is that we need to move away from and what it is we need to move towards. And I think that is, is some of the magic that I see in the movement building that I watch you do. You make it seem like it's possible for all of us. You know, you don't have to be a magic special person to be building this movement. You, you come across as very grounded in it.
1: <laughs> Just as well, we'd be in trouble if we had to be magic.
0: That's right, that's right. Now, Jack, you've been on in, um, in an incredible journey around movement building around mm. literacy. And it'd be great for us to hear about that, both your own experiences and what you're doing with Literacy for Life.
2: Yeah, look, I, I think it's really important. Literacy for Life is the, sort of the last movement building that I've been, been engaged in. But I think I go way back to the anti-apartheid stuff in South Africa, where there's a lot of support for that here. And And the African National Congress in Australia used to meet at Tramby in Sydney, where I worked for 18 years of my life. Tramby also was the home of the Committee to Defend Black Rights, which brought about the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Land rights itself, you know, had one of the founding members of the first Aboriginal Land Council in New South Wales, Kevin Cook. He he was the head of Tramby at the time. So I was part of an organisation that was a movement and, although it was an adult college, Aboriginal college. I used to often say to people, we moonlight in education and we do all this other stuff because we were supporting, you know, East Timor and their independence struggle. We were producing the nuclear-free and independent Pacific News bulletin. So a whole range of stuff was going on. So for me, transitioning into the Literacy for Life Foundation and and building that, as you would a movement, I I think was just a natural transition for me, just rolled over into that, and it's a great movement because the whole concept of it is, and I do a bit of work around, you know, community-led change and all that sort of stuff, but with Literacy for Life, firstly, we don't go into any community unless they invite us in to talk about the work we do, so, so that's the first buy-in, but then secondly, we, we actually train local people to do household surveys in their town of every Aboriginal household and ask them, do they think literacy is important? And do they think it's needed in their community? And overwhelmingly they say yes to that. So the community takes ownership and our work is pretty simple. We just train local people to do all the work. They do all the surveys, they do all the training in the classroom, people that can read and write train those that can't. So movements, they're not easy. They're hard. There's a lot of hard work in them. But they are the things that have proven to be the biggest success. And the literacy campaign model that we use was developed in Cuba in 1961. Now, at that time, Cuba had 50% of literacy. Today, and after one year of the campaign, was 100% literate. And today, they're still the most literate country in the world. So you can call a campaign, you can call it movement, building, call it whatever you like. But that's what works. And so what I've I've said to government several times, you know, and they said, Jack, what's the answer? I said, I don't have the answer to the problem. But that's in the community. But the way to get there is make it a campaign, socialise what you're trying to achieve, and the answers will come from the community.
0: Mm, beautiful. So Moira just put in check, you know, thank goodness for Tramby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, Tramby, <laughs> it was an amazing place, you know. And, and more. just go back to what you were talking about, too, around investing, something that I've been arguing for years and I'm sure you have, you know, stop talking about grants and programs and all that stuff. We have to look at these things as investments in our community's future. You know, we, we, that's, that's where it actually has to land. Well, Whatever we talk about as programs or, or grants, that That puts you back into that benefactor, beneficiary yeah. relationship, which cripples everybody.
1: Yeah, I hate yeah. charities. I'd, I'd act, yeah. I find it really offensive actually. it's yeah. offensive to the human spirit and yeah. um, that's why I love co-ops and mutuals, community yeah. organizing, volunteering. it's it's in the economics for me, and for so long, and I you know I'm, I'm embarrassed about you know forty five years of my life in social development, social work stuff, you know, all I was doing was helping people stay where they are. You know, mm. three generations of people come to the same women's shelter. That's not a success metric.
2: No, no, having having the house full is is not a measure of success, you know, yep. and, it, and it's similar with us, you know, like it's you can have all these employment programs and then change the definition of a job, you know, so that people become employed. So you just keep going back to and it really is, it's crippling, you know, where you get back to that whole thing around, you are the beneficiaries and we're the benefactors and we'll decide when you get something and when you don't. And mm-hmm. we'll maintain the status quo. You won't move from where you are. And that was the beauty of Trambi. And I think that's why we have to move away from being the beneficiaries mm-hmm. of other people's charity.
0: Can I just ask you both, because we see it play out in our work as well, where we can have a call from a community, one in particular that this brings to mind is in working with challenging family violence, the the group that we had of women who were living in or had lived in family violence, who had come together to to shift this in the lives of themselves and others. The biggest thing that they were calling with was financial independence, because once you've had a child with someone in Australia, your childcare is all tied up with that person, even if they're doing time for nearly killing you and the kids, you're financially tied together. And so these women were asking for financial independence, was their call. However, those who were responsible for holding the dollars to make things happen were funding programs or were holding on to the agenda. And the grants that had been received by their individual organizations and i'd be really interested to have you both explore that about what is it that we can shift and how do we shift some of
1: that across the system so that we can actually be responsive to the call of the community yeah I, i mean i think a lot of that work you know participatory budgeting so around the world there's millions of examples of this i mean have the Economy in Brazil is based on that. So when people in government say, "Oh, we can't do it; too hard," well, you know, there's plenty of places around the world that are doing participatory budgeting, where that's where the community decides where the funds go, essentially, but within a policy frame. I think there's—I do think it's come back to economic models. So supporting those women, for example, to form themselves into a co-op and the co-op applies for the grant. You know, because there's got to be new ways. We're in this world where I often refer to it as the CD moment you know we're somewhere between analogue and digital and we haven't quite got got the bridge there and so there's got to be some new mechanisms and then there's models from all sorts of communities around the world like um, perpetual funds where you know everyone puts in you know $20 a week or whatever and then You're on a roster and March is your month and you get the 10 grand that month. So I think that there are plenty of models out there. As Jack was saying before, the answers to that are in the community. I think the challenge for us as practitioners is who hires us? Like the community, we might be accountable to the community, but we might've been hired by the state or Commonwealth or a philanthropic fund. So that's where we have the hard conversations. But I, I think we've got to be very careful in our own practice that we're not colluding with those power structures because our power is very privileged as well.
2: Yeah, look, just on that, it's one of the things I worry about all, all the time for a long, long time is people that are working in communities to bring about some form of equity or improve people's quality of life. But if the, if you're hired by somebody else, then your security lies with the person hiring you and that, that will impact on people's decisions. And so for me, I decided I'd only do the things that I actually really cared about. And even so, I still had to let a lot of things go that I did care about because of the fact that somebody else was pulling the purse strings and demanding you behave in a certain way to do that. So I stepped out of that train. Economic independence and the way money is spent in our communities has to come back to the community because they're the only ones that understand the situation, understand the poverty, understand the strength, on a daily basis to just survive are the people living there with you
0: Mm, beautiful so i'm keen to get a sense from both of you who have really stepped into eldership in this in this field you know moira has talked about you know a time of baton change and jack too has talked about the journey to get to where you are but there are many people just starting off today on this journey if If you were to either talk back to your younger self, just getting started as a professional and or were to talk to someone else, but particularly thinking of your younger self, what would be a key piece of advice that you would like to have had or would like to give to a practitioner just starting off in this movement building for change to help
1: build equity? Yeah, I, I think I would say just ask yourself a question. Who am I colluding with? Like just just ask it and then just see how you feel in your body about that. <laughs> um, and if you're feeling like, oh, great, I'm colluding with them and I know exactly why, go for it. And if it feels terrible, don't. But really trust, I would say trust your intuition more than you um, because you know, you know what's the right thing to do and listen to your inner voice and so that, to me, is about making time for stillness, to be really still inside your heart and to hear your you know, your inner wisdom teacher to make sure you've got enough space to be able to hear it coming through.
2: I couldn't agree more with that. Um, it's the one thing that I always say to people is you know what's right and if your gut feels funny, it probably isn't right so don't go down that road but if i was to talk to my younger self i'm not i'm not going to get go down that elder road i'm not going to be old i'm not going to do that <laughs> <laughs> people have done enough to me i'm not going to do it to myself <laughs> i'm just going to stay young but the thing the thing that i i would say to people is or to myself is to enter into this unconditional
0: mm-hmm.
2: If you're going into a world of human rights or community development or movement building, you have to enter into that space unconditionally because it'll rarely be the road you want to go if you're serious and if you're genuine. It'll always be the road the community wants to travel. That may not be what you think is the best way to go.
0: Beautiful. I just want to check with both of you as we're sort of getting to the end of today's conversation. Is there anything that you had wanted to make sure that you shared today that you haven't had an opportunity to share, but it's a real pearl or a real piece of wisdom that you're wanting to make sure that you got into today's conversation?
1: Not sure it's wisdom, but I wouldn't mind just um, adding a little bit on to something that Jack said about community and economic independence. And I really, we've been one of the groups I work with, Ethical Fields. We've been we're doing a lot of work around this, what we call community wealth building. So, and we're seeing this all over the world, you know, where things are, you know, falling by the wayside. And on the Flurio, we've had an abattoir. Uh, and it's created a new co-op and so that all the farmers have bought it for themselves so they can now actually get their stock to market and really do things there's a cafe further south that where the community have all got together to buy the cafe so the developers don't pull it down and and they've turned that into a co-op and all around the country I'm seeing more and more of these in Gippsland, where the tourism in Bendigo, where the people are getting their own version of Uber, you know, it's really, I'm very excited and positive about community wealth building. And I think that's where the future of this kind of work can go, where communities are making decisions for their own economic independence because so many of them are not independent. The APY um, Arts Collective is a beautiful, um, literally beautiful, gorgeous aesthetics as well, the APY Arts Collective. So I think I want to see more of those things, and I think that's a, a space that practitioners like us can contribute to and, but we need to understand the economics and have more economic modelling and more economic models to draw on. Mm, thank you, Moira. And you, Jack?
2: I want to share something because I was actually talking to someone on the phone today that I'd taught about 30 years ago, and they said, Jack, one of the things I'll never forget that you said in, in our class, and they're not, this is a non-Aboriginal person, she said, you told us the story about your uncle when he put me on the bus when I was leaving Ningen as a political refugee. And he said, son, I've got nothing to give you but a bit of advice. And he said, I just want you to always remember there's nobody on the planet that's any better a person than you are. But always remember you're no better than anyone else either. And I tried to live my life according to that. And, you know, probably a few times I got off the rails a bit, but, but you you it was really it's such an important thing to me and it was funny that someone mentioned that to me today. But the other thing I, I'd leave people with is working in this kind of work, regardless of where you are in the world when you're doing it, you know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason and I'd just leave it at that.
0: Thanks, Jack. That's a beautiful um full stop on today's conversation. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your idea and ideas today and your real practices, the really what do you do and how do you go about this. What we're going to do is we will post this podcast and we'll share it with both of you so that you can have yourselves a bit of a listen. Thank you. Thanks,
1: Sharon. Lovely to see you, Jack.
2: Yeah, yeah, you too, Moira. We'll catch up. We'll we catch will.
1: Up.
2: This is a Narrative Network podcast.